the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study verse by verse, chapter by chapter, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Luke. Luke is a collection of eyewitness testimonies of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Up to chapter 20, we have seen Jesus reveal he is the Messiah spoken of in the prophets. The scribes and Pharisees have been doing all they could to undermine Jesus' earthly ministry. They wanted him dead. Jesus pointed out a widow giving her two mites as an offering to the Lord. The disciples idolized the temple and thought the Messiah would come establish his kingdom against the Roman Empire. Jesus spoke of the coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The disciples had many questions about this and the end of all things. Jesus warned them that people will try to make false claims of the coming kingdom. He told them that persecution would be coming for his followers before his return. We join Pastor Will in Luke chapter 21, verse 14. Verse 14. Therefore, settle it in your hearts not to meditate before what you shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. The phrase there, settle, it means you must decide this. You need to make this decision beforehand. We all need to make this decision today. We all need, if we haven't already, we need to make this decision today that if we're persecuted, not to meditate before what you shall answer. I have heard people say so many times that this means don't plan out what you're going to say beforehand. Just the Lord's going to guide you. He's going to lead you. Now, I don't know about you. You know how that normally works for me? Someone begins to give me a hard time about the Lord or I get an opportunity to bear testimony of the Lord and I don't have anything planned beforehand. You know what happens to me? Uh, da, 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 I don't know. That's what happens to me. That's not what Jesus is saying here. The word to meditate beforehand, it actually means to con a speech beforehand. To con a speech beforehand. In other words, when you're trying to con somebody, you're coming up with a a plan to trick them or a plan to get out of trouble. That's what this means here. The word their answer, it means to defend oneself against false accusation. The phrase to not meditate beforehand, to defend yourself against false accusations by thinking up a con, it speaks of being so anxious that you conjure up a story to get out of trouble. See, the idea is when hard times come upon the church or upon Christians or Christianity because of persecution, targeted persecution, and you end up in a place where you're before the synagogues or before the authorities. Our job isn't before and to go, I need to figure out how to get out of this. I need to figure out how to save my skin. That's not our job. Our job is to say, Lord, what do you want me to say to them so that I can be a, have a good testimony before them? When I get accused of being a Christian or my Christianity gets critiqued, what do you want me to say to them that will give them accurate information about you and be a good testimony? 
This is not about lack of preparation. In fact, 1 Peter 3.15 contradicts that idea. In 1 Peter 3.15, it tells us, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts. Set him apart in your hearts. Spend special time with him. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness, humility, and fear, reverence. We need to prepare our hearts beforehand to be humble and to have a reverence for God when we share. I see a lot of people who boldly share accurate things about Christ, but they are arrogant and they do not fear God because they mistreat others in how they say it. That is not Christ. But we should not just sit there and go, oh, the Lord tell me what to say. No, we need to sanctify the Lord in our hearts and say, God, what do you want me to say? Because that's what the Lord says he'll do. It says he'll fill our mouth. For I will give you a mouth. The word there means to help someone say something. I will help you say something. I will give you wisdom. The word there means knowledge, which makes skillful performance possible. I might be taught and well-trained on how to do something, but if I don't have the skill to actually perform it in a successful way, then that knowledge does me no good. So this is why we need to sanctify the Lord in our hearts, you know, and seek him. Be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies in us with that humility and with a reverence for God. Because when we do that, Jesus will help us and he will help us to be successful so that all of our adversaries, those who are persecuting us, won't be able to gainsay. It means to contradict. They won't be able to say, well, that's not true. Nor resist, it means to oppose or be hostile towards what we're saying. Listen, they might hate you. They might oppose you. But your testimony will stand because they will know what Jesus is really like when you're done. They will know what Jesus is really like when you're done. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul the Apostle says, Remember the Lord Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto chains. But the word of God is not chained. Paul says, I'm chained to a Roman soldier every single day. Isn't it awesome? <laughs> he stuck with me. And the word of God, he thinks I'm in chains. He's in chains. Because every day, the word of God isn't bound. And as I seek the Lord and ask him, to, how do I minister to this, this soldier, Bob? You know, how do I minister to this soldier, Dan? How do I minister to this soldier, Carl? You know, how do I minister to this soldier, Lee? You know, every new day, he might have a new soldier. And he's every day, he sought the Lord. How do I minister to this guy? What do you want me to say, Lord? And as he would pray and sanctify the Lord in his heart and, and, and ask for humility and, and choose to fear the Lord, guess what? He said, the word of God wasn't bound, even though I was in chains. It resulted in a testimony. We need to sanctify the Lord in our hearts, humble ourselves, fear God, and ask him and say, Lord, what do you want me to say? What do you want me to say today when I have the opportunity to share the gospel with somebody at work? What do you want me to say today when someone critiques me praying before I eat or maybe reading my Bible on my break or whatever? When the boss says, I can't do that. What do you want me to do, Lord? Prepare beforehand so that you have the reason for the answer for the hope that lies in you to share with someone through the power of Christ and to be a faithful testimony. Jesus' current adversaries were the Jewish religious leaders, but the disciples' future adversaries would be even more than that. 
Verse 16, and you shall be betrayed both by parents and brothers, kinsfolk and friends, and some of you shall they cause to be put to death. And you shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. Jesus says, listen, you need to be prepared for that moment, but it might cost you everything in this life. You may be turned over to the authorities by your parents, by your own siblings, by your own countrymen, even your friends. And some of you, they will put to death. All the apostles were put to death by persecution, except for John. He's the only one who died a natural death. You should be hated of all men for my name's sake. They won't be able to oppose our testimony, but they might arrest us and they might even kill us. But guess what? That's okay. That's okay. Because we're not about preserving our lives here at all cost. We're about storing up treasure in heaven. And so in verse 18, the Lord says, but there shall not a hair of your head perish. So in your patience, possess you, your souls. Not a hair of your head will be destroyed or brought to ruin. It was a Jewish statement of eternity, the idea of a hair of your head not being harmed. You will not be brought to ruin eternally. You will not be destroyed eternally. And so in your patience, the word there means endurance, perseverance, steadfastness. In your endurance, you must possess your souls. That's a command. This is a command we need to obey. We need to put it somewhere to remind us. In our endurance, we must, the word possess, it means to save or preserve our souls. Might be saying, wait a second, I thought Jesus saves us. What does it mean that I must save or preserve my soul? Well, this isn't new theology by Jesus. It's just another way to describe discipleship. In Mark 16, verses 24 through 26, Jesus used the same language. He said in 16:24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and shall lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Paul told Timothy this as well to his own personal discipleship as a pastor. He said, take heed unto yourself and unto your teaching. Continue in those things. For in doing this, you shall both save yourself and those who are listening to you. See, this is the part of the plan I need to understand. The great tribulation that he described in verses 10 and 11, it's not for me. It's not for me. Our time is about denying self, taking up the cross daily, and following Jesus. It's about taking heed, like Paul told Timothy, to our spiritual well-being. Because our salvation doesn't end the day we accept Christ. The Bible describes our salvation in three parts. Our justification, the day we get saved, we are justified. God makes it just as if I'd never sinned. I am wholly cleansed of all my sin. I have a home in heaven. The deal is done. But from that day begins the process of sanctification, part of my salvation. I'm made more like Christ. It starts the day I get saved and it won't be done till the day the Lord returns or I die. But that's not even the end. The last step is our glorification. That's why the Bible says sometimes, for we shall be saved. Because it's referring to when we get our new bodies that will never sin, never grow old, never die. So salvation refers to all those things. So when he says here, in your patience, save your souls, he's talking about our sanctification here, our maturity, our growth as Christians. 
That's what we're supposed to be focused on now. Not about the great tribulation. That time's not for us. Our time is about denying self, taking up our cross daily, following Jesus, taking heed to our spiritual well-being. Because as we do, we will grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus who will empower us to be a faithful testimony to others. Amen? This persecution of the church, it will be consistent throughout the entire church age. Yes, there'll be times and places where it'll be worse than others. We have it really good here in the United States. Praise the Lord. I'm so thankful for our country. I'm so thankful for our freedoms. Praise the Lord for that. But we have brethren all throughout the world who don't have those things. Throughout history, there have been times when no one in the world, believers in the world, have had the freedoms we have. And we may not have them someday here. But even though persecution of the church will be consistent throughout the church age, the death of the disciples, their personal persecution that he's referring to here, after that, that will be the destruction of Jerusalem. Verse 20. Before I get into these verses, we need to kind of preface it with a few thoughts. These five verses here, verses 20 through 24 in Luke, his account of the Olivet Discourse, they are unique. Matthew does not record them for us. Mark does not record them for us. While Matthew and Mark do talk about Jerusalem and its persecution under the, and during the time of the Antichrist, verse 24 here, which talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, it says, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword. They shall be led away captive, the Jews, into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. Verse 24 makes it clear that Jesus is not talking about the tribulation persecution of the Antichrist in these verses. In the other two gospels, when Jesus mentions Jerusalem, he references the abomination of desolation in the Holy of Holies. That is not mentioned here because he's not talking about that. There is no mention of the destruction of Jerusalem, the diaspora, or the times of the Gentiles in Matthew and Mark. That's because they are different parts of the teaching. If we don't understand that, you will get very confused when you read those two sections. In addition to this, Matthew 24, verse 9, when he's talking about the great tribulation, it's very easy to become confused and think, well, that's talking about the same thing he's talking about here in Luke chapter 21 and verses 12 through 19 when he says, you know, they're going to hand you over and they're going to do this. That is not true, though. That is not true. In Matthew 24, 8, when he says, these are the beginning of sorrows, he gets to seal number five when he says, then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted. After he talks about the pestilences, the earthquakes, the wars, the peace and safety, all that kind of stuff. He says, then shall they deliver you up. But here in verse 12 of Luke 21, after he lists the beginning of sorrows, he says, but before these things, not then. Do you understand the difference? If you don't understand these differences, you'll read Matthew 24, you'll read Luke 21, you'll think they're talking about the same thing and you'll get confused. And that's why you have so many weird theologies out here about the end times. Again, I love and respect our, our brothers who are our dear brothers who love the Lord, who are preterists, but that is wrong theology. You cannot read about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD here and think it's the same thing Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24 when he's talking about the abomination of desolation and the Antichrist. They are completely different parts of the teaching. They answer different questions that the disciples asked. Having said all that... <laughs> Let's look at 20 through 24. Now he says, And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed, surrounded with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Now this is a direct answer to their question. What will be the significant event 
that occurs that we know the destruction of Jerusalem is coming soon. And here it is. When you see Jerusalem surrounded with armies, then at that time, know that the destruction, the desolation thereof of Jerusalem is nigh. Literally, it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means it's arrived. It's already here. It is arrived and it is a done deal. Again, this is the only place in the Gospels where the disciples, that question is answered. Matthew doesn't cover it. Mark doesn't cover it. Again, you'll get confused if you think he's answering that question in something in Matthew 24 or Mark 13. It's the only place that we have it recorded that Jesus answers that question. When will every stone be thrown down and the city destroyed? When armies lay siege to it. In 66 AD, the Jewish people revolted against Rome, gaining control of Jerusalem and setting up their own government. Caesar Nero responded by sending General Vespasian. The majority of the rebels were pushed into Jerusalem by 69 AD. Nero took his own life that year, and Vespasian was declared emperor. So he left to his son Titus to finish the job. Titus laid siege to Jerusalem with four legions in April of 70 AD. The city was breached and destroyed in August. When you see the city surrounded in April, it's going to be destroyed very soon after. And it was just four months later, which is why Jesus says what he says next, verse 21. Then, (laughs) when you see the army surrounding, get out of Dodge. Then let them which are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let them which are in the midst of it depart out of it, and let not them that are in the countries enter thereinto. Now, April 70 AD, of course, is the time of Passover when Jews from all over the world would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Titus, the Roman general, allowed pilgrims to enter Jerusalem, but he refused to let anyone leave during the siege. This was a strategic move by him to deplete supplies since the city would swell to over 2 million people during the Passover. Anyone who believed Jesus' words and obeyed them would have been spared. Eusebius, an early church historian, said, the people belonging to the church of Jerusalem had been ordered by an oracle revealed to approved men on the spot before the war broke out to leave the city and dwell in a town of Perea called Pella. Guess who did leave town? Christians and anyone else who took heed to Jesus' warning. This was the extra mercy of God. Even though they crucified the Messiah, they said, we have no king but Caesar, Jesus predicted that this would happen as an extra mercy. Another warning to repent for anyone who'd listened before it was too late. Why was this destruction coming? Verses 22 and 23. For these are the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. For there shall be great distress in the land, and here's the key, and wrath upon this people, the Jewish people. The word here says it's a day of vengeance, punishment, the act of giving of justice. Deuteronomy 28, verses 49 through 52, God told them, he warned the people all the way back then through Moses that there will become a time, a day of visitation when I will come to visit you. And if you reject me, I will do this. I will lay siege to your city and I will level it to the ground. Hosea chapter nine predicts the same exact thing, the day of visitation. And what did Jesus say when he wept over the city? Because you did not recognize the day of your visitation. Your house is left to you desolate. This is God's judgment, not on the Antichrist or the world or part of the Great Tribulation. This is God's judgment on 
the nation of Israel because they rejected their Messiah. Time and time again, Israel would rebel against the Lord and the various judgments of Deuteronomy 28 would occur. But Hosea prophesied this specific time. And Jesus wept over the city because they didn't recognize it and rejected him. And for everyone who didn't heed this warning, the judgment would be horrible. Woe unto them. The word there means disaster, horror, a state of intense hardship. Woe unto them. For there should be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. In the great tribulation, God will rescue, supernaturally rescue, Israel from the Antichrist. It's not judgment upon Israel. This is God's judgment upon Israel. It has nothing to do with the end times. We must not confuse the two teachings. In verse 24, the result of Jerusalem's destruction, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword. According to Josephus, 1.1 million Jews died in the siege by Titus. And they shall be led away captive into all nations. 97,000 surviving Jews were enslaved and taken to Rome. There they were either executed, sold as slaves, or forced to become gladiators. They should be led the captive, away captive into all nations. And lastly, Jerusalem will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. The word they're trodden down, it means to conquer a people and then to keep them under subjection with all the contempt that comes with that. Treat them as lesser citizens. Jerusalem will be under subjection to a foreign power and the Jews held in contempt as a lesser people by those powers until the times of the Gentiles are complete. There are so many important truths in that statement. I I don't have time to go over all of them today, but I want to point out a couple. First, It shows that God isn't done with Israel. God isn't done with Israel because it says there's a time limit to their judgment until the times of the Gentiles be complete. Therefore, the church cannot replace Israel. We cannot be Israel. The idea that the church is Israel and all the prophecies about the future referring to Israel refer to us, we're the 144,000 other nonsense. You can't hold that view because God's not done with his people. There is an end to their judgment. Any theology that teaches the church is Israel ignores not just this scripture, but the entirety of scripture. In Romans chapter 11, verse 25, Paul tells us, for I would not have, brethren, have, for I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Now you can bet the church is going to be ignorant on it if he warns us not to be. We're going to be, have bad information. And what is the thing we're not to be ignorant of? Lest you become wise in your own conceits, think your hot stuff. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And so all Israel shall be saved as it is written. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer who shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. So concerning the gospel right now, they're enemies for your sakes, but touching the election, they're beloved for their father's sakes. For the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. God made promises to Israel and he will not break them. He has called them to a future, a glorious future under the reign of the Messiah. He will not break that promise. So God's not done with Israel. Now you might be saying, well, what is the times of the Gentiles? Well, the word times, it just means ages or errors. And it's plural because there'll be many different errors that comprise this judgment. It won't just be Rome that's doing this to Israel. Jesus predicts that multiple groups will be involved in controlling Jerusalem. And that's exactly what's happened for 2,000 years. 
Rome, the Arab caliphates, European crusaders, the Mongolian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, and then, of course, the British Empire. And even though Israel became a nation again in 1948, there's another interesting prophecy in the New Testament in Revelation 11, verses 1 and 2, where the angel is told to measure the temple boundaries. But he says, don't measure the outer court, for that is given to the Gentiles to be trodden down upon until their time be complete. Even though Israel became a nation in 1948, and Israel took militarily control of the Temple Mount, it's still officially in the hands of the Jordanian government. They can't, Jews can't go on the Temple Mount whenever they want. They can't go on there at all. Only soldiers go up there when the Muslims are throwing cocktails down on the Wailing Wall people as they're worshiping. The times of the Gentiles will last until the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back to rescue Israel and to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Only then will the contempt and the subjugation be gone and Israel restored to glory. Is it a big deal that Israel's in the land? You bet, because of other prophecies. But we're still living in the times of the Gentiles. I do believe because they're back in the land that we are in the last error of this time. But the point of today is this. Everything Jesus said happened exactly as he predicted, which means his exhortation of verses 12 through 19 in particular, verse 19, must be taken seriously by us who live in the church age. See, so many are looking for the Antichrist or searching out earthquakes or signs and wonders that prove the end is near. We're not to be looking for that. We're looking for Jesus Christ, amen? And while we wait, we're to pursue him, to grow in him, to persevere and be a faithful witness. And I ask you this morning, are you doing that? If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.